Welcome to The Deep Dive, a weekly podcast that takes a deeper look into the happenings at the Walrus. I'm Simran Singh. On this week's episode... In 2019, when I reported from there, there was a military consultant who exactly foretold that this would happen. He was like, when the fighting comes, everyone will leave and Ukrainians will be left standing here on their own. And that's not to speak ill of the Canadian military or the American military, of course they had to leave. There's there's a lot of known reasons for why they had to do that. But it is this very complicated relationship and they did leave them. In light of Russia's most recent invasion of Ukraine, Sarah Larniuk wanted to take a look back at what the Canadian armed forces did there and how the training it provided has affected the country's ability to hold off Russian advancements. It's the long view on a story that has been a long time coming, in a war everyone hoped could be avoided. Here is that conversation with Sarah Larniak. How long have you been interested in covering Eastern Europe and Ukraine? In 2019, I actually got a grant to go and spend six weeks traveling, reporting, doing in-depth features from Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, Poland, and Hungary. And so it's been a few years that I've been interested because it was six weeks on the ground, but it was, I've got to say, like three or four months of like buildup and research and just trying to understand what I was walking into. Of the pieces I've published, I probably spoke to like six or seven times the number of people who have made it into any of the articles that have, you know, made it into print or audio form. So it's it's been extensive. And then the pandemic happened and my plan had been to continue reporting from there, but like travel became impossible. And so it just kind of fell off my radar as like pretty much everything other than the pandemic fell off everyone's radar for two years. And then the invasion happened and it was kind of the unthinkable yet had been something that was, was thought was a possibility. And so when it happened, it just seemed surreal, but also this moment of like, of course this happened. This was where it was always going to go. This was actually my next question then. As someone who was steeped in the recent conflicts, were you surprised when Russia invaded? I wasn't anticipating it happening, to be honest. But at the same time, when I woke up, and I remember like I live with my brother and he walked into the room and he's like, it happened. And I was like, yeah, of course it did. And we just like, we're both Ukrainian Canadian second generation and we just kind of had a hug and a cry because it's just um it was just this really heartbreaking moment to realize what was on the line for Ukrainians both of my paternal grandparents came from that region and on my maternal side they were more fluid in terms of like they were uh, German Mennonites but in that region and so my whole family kind of comes from that area and my grandfather came before World War II. My grandmother was a slave laborer during World War II. And so she was very impacted. And quite frankly, no one in our family ever really thought to go back because we didn't talk about Ukraine. She was very, she loved the culture. She loved the people. She loved the language, all of those things. But it was also this place where all of these horrific things had happened to her. So I was the first one in my direct family to have gone back. And I was there to report on a war again. And so it, it kind of felt like it had come full circle. And yeah, it's this very surreal experience, but also I was so grateful to have gone back because this country just 
amazed me and surprised me and it's so beautiful like just not it's not something you're going to capture in a war for sure but it like it's beauty and people how kind they are it was all just it really blew me away are your grandparents still with you no no they aren't i suspect they would still not be speaking to me for having reported from from ukraine as a war zone if they were alive but they are not <laughs> so What's it like to have to watch what is happening on screens from so far away? Incredibly difficult, personally, and partially for the reasons because I'm afraid of what will happen to the country and the people, but also because I want to be there. Like, as a journalist, I've reported from there before. There was a realization that, like, this isn't a place where I'm needed right now when it initially happened. It was so oversaturated with journalists, but it's something I'm definitely considering doing in the near future. So I'll, I'll be back. It's just a matter of when the lull in the coverage comes and when it's appropriate for me to go. You tweeted about the story that you wrote for the walrus, and this line really struck me. What it's like to leave your allies when they need you the most. Yeah, that was the sentiment that I was actually just trying to capture with this piece because Canada has done so much. And it's not that it's been insignificant, and it's not just Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, but it didn't stop the worst from happening. And now the worst has happened, and we're sitting on the sidelines, unable to really intervene. Of course, military aid is flowing into the country, and that's not to undermine it, but it is just this very interesting dichotomy of you have the support of some of the strongest militaries in the world, and yet you're still being invaded because you aren't a member of the club. You're not member of NATO. And in 2019, when I reported from there, there was a military consultant who exactly foretold that this would happen. He was like, when the fighting comes, everyone will leave and Ukrainians will be left standing here on their own. And that's not to speak ill of the Canadian military or the American military. Of course, they had to leave. There's, there's a lot of known reasons for why they had to do that. But it is this very complicated relationship and they did leave them and so I started reaching out to soldiers individual soldiers we always hear from you know the top brass but I wanted to hear from people who had actually trained people on the ground there and hear about what they felt and how they were looking at it and they're struggling in a lot of in in much the same way that I am in that they want to be there doing the thing that they're trained to do I want to be there as a journalist they want to be there as soldiers of course, the Canadian military has actually now banned that as a possibility. You would actually have to quit your job as a soldier in order to go. But that's happened too. So it's just a very interesting point in the story that we're doing as much as we can, but we've also abandoned them. And they're both, both of those things are true. Well, and of course, I, I mean, Canada is intervening with the largest sanctions we've ever seen against Russia and military aid is flowing. And so that's all very significant. And I mean, now we're starting to see the push for the embassy to reopen and we're seeing different diplomats going into Kyiv to demonstrate how strong NATO's resolve is to support Ukraine. But as far as like actually stopping the war, there's not much to be done, right? We'll be right back. 
I'm Lauren Tamaki, and I'm an illustrator and designer. My latest work for The Walrus was a portrait that accompanied a review of Sheila Hetty's new book, Pure Color. I commonly use a lot of color in my portraits, and I especially love when they clash and are contradictory. I was so inspired by the cover of Pure Color, which was designed by the amazing Nakim. She used this particular Ellsworth Kelly green on the cover that I knew I needed in the illustration. When I was looking at photo references of Sheila, I noticed she would often thoughtfully put her hand to her face, so I included that as well. She also always has this beautiful enigmatic smile, and I hope I captured the smile, the vibrancy, and sensitivity of Sheila, who is so good and such an incredible author. Illustration and art has always had a home at The Walrus, and you can support their work and mine by subscribing to The Walrus at thewalrus.ca slash subscribe. In your story for The Walrus, this last line, the initial training focus was all medical, it was defensive stuff Canada did not want to be seen to be helping anyone to kill anybody. Grant says, it's nice helping them after they've been shot, but it would have been a lot better if we were helping them before they were shot, so they don't get shot. Can you talk about that? I mean, that quote that quote struck me as, as very interesting for a couple of reasons, because it speaks to what Canada was... Canada and other NATO countries were trying to do initially, and they thought the best they could do was de-escalate. Okay, we'll just teach Ukrainians how to mend people in the field if they get shot. That way Russia won't see us as an aggressor. Okay, that was a good theory. It obviously didn't pan out as planned. And I don't think anyone can, can or really does feel guilty about being wrong about that, because that was, you know, the best decision with the amount of information and the knowledge we had at the time. We, I say collective we, like I was making that decision somehow, obviously not, but it does just, it feels like it's not enough. Even if it defies rationality, it feels like it's not enough because people are dying and you see the images and they're just heartbreaking. And then you start hearing about the downstream consequences of this war, food shortages around the world that will impact so many. And it just really feels frustrating and not enough. And that was kind of the conclusion this article came to was that NATO has its real shortcomings. Like, it's great if you're in the club, it works as a great defense deterrent against conflict. But if you're not, we've not figured out how to protect countries that fall outside of that. And I mean, this doesn't just apply to Ukraine. It applies to Syria as well. Like, the same thing happened. We could help, we could send aid, but it just doesn't cut it. It doesn't save the lives of the people who are feeling the brunt of Russian aggression. What's the next story you want to tell about Ukraine? In the stories I've told about conflict, I think what I find most compelling is finding the seeds of the next conflict. It's always predictable because this this conflict is going on and understandably Ukrainians are, are furious. They're filled with hatred for Putin, but that's also following over onto other Russians, all things that are related to Russia. I saw a post, a friend in Ukraine posted about how they'd actually changed the name of a type of pierogi because it was connected to Russia. So they've changed the name of the pierogi. It's kind of like, you know, when we stopped calling French fries, French fries for a while. 
It's kind of along those lines. But it's this hatred. It's this brewing hatred towards Russians. And I understand where it comes from. It's absolutely understandable. But it's also setting up dynamics that will last for a lot longer than this conflict will. And I really... I find it really important to tell the human stories that reflect that because it helps us understand where the dynamics are shifting, what the really long-term consequences of this war might be. And it also focuses on a nation trying to find itself because Ukraine, as Ukraine, has not existed for all of that long. In 2014, with the uh, Euromaidan revolution, things changed a lot. What it meant to be Ukrainian changed a lot. And now that's going to shift again because this, this war is uniting Ukrainians. And in some ways it's really beautiful and in some ways it's really horrifying. Well, it was the same thing when I reported from Iraq. You heard these people with this burning, fiery hatred and they talked about having documents that proved who had supported ISIS. Well, it's like, okay, maybe those are legitimate, maybe they aren't, but the hatred is there. And you know that's gonna play out for a long time. They're just like, there's no way around it. and. That was something I found very compelling about the reporting I did from there, and it's, it's repeated in all conflicts. You, you see the seeds of what the dynamics will be in the region for, for decades. That's my conversation with Sarah Lorniak. Her story was edited by Harley Rustad, and it's live at thewalrus.ca. You can find the link in our show notes. Thanks for joining us for The Deep Dive. It was produced by myself and Angela Missery, who also edited the episode. Thanks so much to Sarah Larniak for joining us this week. Music for this podcast is provided by Audio Jungle. Our theme song is This Podcast Theme by InPlus Music. Additional music includes Stay Cool by Loops Lab, plus Spring Thaw, Virtutes, Instrumenti, and An Upsetting Theme, all by Kevin McLeod. Apologies if we've misspoken in the past and called you David. It's Kevin McLeod. Don't forget to subscribe to The Deep Dive from the Walrus on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, when we take our next Deep Dive. Deep Dive.